Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Deb Calvert. Deb, welcome to the show. Henry, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here with you and with your audience on The How of Business. Thanks. We're we're glad to have you. Deb is the president and founder of People First Productivity Solutions. She's also a keynote speaker. She's an instructor at Berkeley. She's the author of a book uh, that's called The Discovery of Questions, a best-selling book series, that is. And she's worked with sales productivity specialists and sales researchers since back to 2000. And prior to that, prior to founding People First Productivity Solutions, she was a in the corporate training world uh, and a corporate training director for a Fortune 500 media company. Uh, early in her career, it included a variety of inside and outside major account sales positions. And as president and founder of People First Productivity Solutions, Deb helps companies to boost productivity, through people development. Uh, this work includes sales training, team effectiveness counseling and consulting, and leadership program design. And we're, we're gonna get into that today as it relates to very small businesses. Uh, Deb is also a certified master of the leadership challenge and a certified executive coach. And additionally, Deb is certified as a practitioner, practitioner of the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is an assessment tool. We're going to chat about that and how we can use that in a small business environment. Uh, so her, she has a unique mix of senior level sales, human resources, operations experience. All of these things come together to help her clients today. And so we're going to chat about her entrepreneurial experience, her journey, how she got to where she's at now, leadership and sales advice and tips for small business owners, and other general tips and techniques as we go through the conversation to help you grow your business I believe you live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Is that right, Deb? I do. I live just south of San Jose in the middle of Silicon Valley and the salad bowl of the U.S. It's a great place to be. (laughs) Great stuff. So once again, Deb Calvert, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, anything I left out there, I abbreviated some things in the bio just uh, so I wouldn't be talking forever. But uh, you had an interesting background that we're going to dive into and and uh, want to start there, but unless I missed anything key that you wanted to mention now as far as your background. No, I think you and I have this in common, a little bit of a lot of things and uh, not afraid to try new things. Uh, I, I'm not, and certainly you don't appear to be either. Agreed, agreed. And then we have diverse background. And like most of our listeners, we come from a corporate world and then transition into becoming our own boss. So I'd like to understand more of that journey. You went to school to study journalism, is that right? It is, yes. And so what was your thinking back then? What did you think you would do career-wise? Did you think back then you would become your own boss? What were your thoughts back then as you look back? No, like so many people, I never thought about being my own boss until a moment of crisis forced that thought. Uh, Starting out, I, I knew, what I really knew is that I wanted to ask questions. And journalists got to ask questions. I even as a young kid, I was told I asked too many questions. And you know, then I became a student journalist in high school and 
asking questions was a good thing. So I went to college. I got a journalism degree. And I wanted to get a job at the newspaper in my town, the Kansas City Star. But they didn't hire people straight out of school, typically, for the, the, the editorial side of the business. So I took the first job that they'd give me, which was selling classified advertising. And I thought, like so many salespeople, you know, this is just temporary. I'll eventually be doing what I really want to do, what I have a degree to do. But I found out that I loved sales and I was good at sales and I was learning a lot from in incredibly smart people that surrounded me. So I never looked back. I never moved out of sales. I, I had a progression in advertising sales at that newspaper for 16 years. I ended up going to the, the corporate parent company and was, uh, as you said, the, the training director, sales training director there. And when that company closed its doors, I had great experience in 31 markets. I had seen enough that I was pretty sure I didn't want to stay exclusively in the newspaper business because things were beginning to, to look a little rough there. But I, I wasn't sure I wanted to move again. I had left Kansas City and settled here. So I woke up with the thought one morning, what if? These four companies that have given me job offers, serious offers, I've, I've looked at real estate in the markets. Of those four companies, would any of them hire me as a consultant until I can figure out what I really want to do? And three out of the four said yes within a week. And that's how I went into business 10 years ago. Wow, interesting. So that was a great transition opportunity you had then to segue into becoming your own boss because you, you kind of lined up some, at least some income, some revenue, some clients to help you make that transition, right? And I had a little bit of a severance package, but I set rules for myself. I said, you know, I'm not going to stay in business. This is going to be temporary unless I can prove to myself a couple of things. And, and I was able to prove those things. And, and did those, those these were financial markers or, or uh, some kind of metrics that you said, if I don't do this, then that's not successful enough. I'll go back to getting a job. Yes. So, yes, there was a financial point. I, I knew how much money I needed to make. There was, for me, uh, I wanted to be sure that I could sell myself. I knew I was a good salesperson, but did I have something sellable? So I wanted to make sure that I had at least 50% of my revenue coming from people I didn't already know. So it wasn't just the network. Mm, yeah. And then I wanted to be sure my third rule was within six months, I needed to find at least one client, a good sized client outside of the newspaper industry so that I could branch out. Yeah. So that was a very methodical approach. I love that. If you look back at it now, would you have done it the same way? In other words, giving yourself the, these very specific measures to decide whether to continue or not, would you have done it the same way? I think so. I... I, it, I lucked into that. It was really just uh, not believing in myself that caused me to have mm. these these rules. So if I were to do it all over again, I think I'd have a little more belief in myself along with, and here's what I'm striving for. Those would have been goals as opposed to knockout mm. factors. Yeah, yeah, because it would have been a shame if you had missed it just slightly and, and then surrendered the idea and thought, well, that doesn't work for me. Yes, yeah. agreed. All right, so going back to the point about when you wanted to go into journalism and you asked a lot of questions, I find that curiously as a one of the common denominators often when I speak to other entrepreneurs, it's that that curiosity, that always having that curiosity that I think is a common trait that we have. Uh, but you ended up not going into journalism. Do you how do you then or how did you still tap into that passion you must have had for writing? that desire, you're probably good at it. How do you, how did you express yourself in that way? 
well, I have three blogs every week. Mm. And so the writing certainly gets satisfied, plus I do articles and content elsewhere. Uh, the other part, the, the research part, the asking questions part, also continues. I, my, my book is based on 20 years of field research about the subject of questions. So I got yeah. you know, to, to satisfy that two directions. Yeah, no doubt. Obviously, the book, of course, and, and the blogging, and then just that whole approach to investigating and asking questions and asking questions that, that all applies and applies so much, especially since that's a strength for you and how you go about growing a business, starting a business and so forth. Uh, so very interesting. So 2006 timeframe is when you started uh, the people first productivity solutions business that you have now. Has it evolved since then? What did it look like back then? We talked a little bit, obviously, when you're starting it, first handful of clients, but are you doing the same thing now that you were doing back then as far as the services that you offer? Mostly, uh, although they have certainly expanded. And as I've grown the business, we've grown into different industries and sectors, product lines. So yes, it's it's evolved, but it all started with the thought that at, at the core, selling and leading are all about people getting connected. And having come out of a corporate background where things were pretty rough for the, for the last year as it was on the, the block to be sold, I knew that whatever I was going to do in business, it had to do something with with people. So hence the name, right? Productivity, I care about that and I care about solutions, but I really believe at the core that you have to put people first. And so our philosophy and our approach to what we do has remained the same. Okay, great. So let's let's start with that, putting people first. And uh, I'll read a quote here. I think it was either from the book or from your website. We build organizational strength by putting people first, end quote. So explain this concept and a little bit more about what you mean by that, and especially from the perspective of a small business owner. Well, yeah, this is what we stand for. This is essentially our mission statement. And it's, you know, I know that every business, certainly 10 years in my own business, I, I get that you need profit. You need good products. You you need processes and programs. And, and you have to spell all those things out in your business plan. And if somebody comes to you, for example, as a SCORE mentor, you're going to tell them that that's what they need to focus on. And, and if they go to get a bank loan, that's what the bank's going to expect is that they have the, the plan for the profit and the products and the processes. But here's what I also know. I know that the way you engage with your customers, the way you bring in and treat your employees, the, the community that you, that you want to build around your business, all of that depends on, on putting people first. It's, it's the people who are going to help you to achieve any of those other results. Especially long term, right? You can get away with cheating people or misleading people maybe for the short term, but over time and sometimes very short time anymore because things are so transparent now because of the internet. It doesn't last long if you're not true to that. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that doesn't last long is that you're a person too. So in your own business, whatever your aspirations are, whatever you're hoping to, to achieve, if you work yourself to the bone and forget about treating yourself right, that's not sustainable either. So you get lumped into the people first part. Yeah. All right, you talk about, one of the things you say is stop selling and start leading. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, I don't mean stop making sales. Right. 
In fact, I mean, make more sales and here's how you do it. And, and this is a movement. We, this is a huge research project. We've got a lot of great partners who are coming around this and, and some significant interest in the sales community. And for small businesses, I think this when they hear about this, it makes sense for them too. What I mean is abandon those stereotypical sales behaviors, the ones that feel icky anyway, stop that, and replace those selling behaviors with the behaviors of leaders, the ones, in fact, that we know, there are 30 of them, the leadership challenge is the body of work that has done this research for over 30 years. If you will exhibit any of those 30 behaviors more frequently, people will choose willingly to follow you. And we know that buyers are no different than anyone else, and we just completed a, a buyer research study that says, yes, if you will start leading instead of those selling behaviors, you're going to make more sales. And Deb, can you share a couple of those behaviors that, of that list of 30? You bet. Some of them are very straightforward and simple. They're, they're human behaviors. And that would be things like treat others with dignity and respect. But unfortunately, a lot of times in, in small business, that gets lost somehow. So it, it can be as basic and essential as just treat others with dignity and respect all the way up to the behaviors that relate to collaborating with and cooperating with your buyers, giving them a voice in, in shaping the solutions that you're offering to them, making sure that they feel invested in them. Uh, behaviors where you are actively listening and you're asking challenging questions to get people to think beyond what they might already have known or, or been thinking about. Um, inspiring them, telling the picture, you know, painting the, the, the picture of what the possibilities are so that they can see some future state. All those are things that leaders do. Mm -hmm. The thing you talk about is creating a customer experience that keeps them coming back. So define for me, if you will, how kind of you look at this customer experience. And also let's keep in mind that we have all types of different types of business owners that are listening. Some have traditional brick and mortar businesses where the customer comes in, others might deal with their clients over the phone. So how does that, how does that apply in those different environments? But what is this customer experience you're talking about? Okay, so customer experience or CX in, in B2C and in retail, they're ahead of the rest of us. Um, the big box stores online and in their brick and mortars, they have done work. They have put deliberate emphasis on focus on thinking about the customer journey and what they want that experience to be at every single touch point, whether it's virtual or, or live and in person. But every business, no matter what size, should be doing exactly the same thing because think of it. If, if it's those big stores and the places where we do most of our shopping that are conditioning our buyers to have those, those heightened expectations around their experience, then we have to keep up. Otherwise, we're going to look really disappointing by contrast to what they're getting everywhere else in those places where they more typically do business day to day. So the experience has to do simply with what's happening in every engagement with you, around you. The, the most mundane of transactions that they have with you still add up to some kind of connection that will reflect on your brand, your image, and their loyalty to you. And that it's all it's all congruent, right? So that it all makes sense and fits together. 
Yes. And I think I think for small business owners, it can be the hardest and the simplest thing to do. It can be easy to do because we are typically in charge as a small business owner. Often we are the face in a very small business, or we certainly have a very small team that we can directly impact. So we can certainly enact change and implement things very easily as opposed to a large corporation that has, you know, hundreds of retail outlets, for example. But, but it's hard because this, this whole concept of it, we, sometimes as small business owners, we don't even know where to start. And that's where someone like you comes in. So to that point, to achieve this, to achieve this customer experience that then leads to increased sales, ideally, where do, where do you start with a client that's been in business for a while? Where do you start? What questions do you have them ask of themselves to start getting to that point where they have a cohesive customer experience? That's a great question. I, I have to answer it in, in two tracks. The first is mental. So to think about the experience that's that includes the emotional connection. How does the, the customer that you want, how will they feel about your business? Forrester, big research company, I, I was at their conference uh, for B2B marketers last week, and, and they have named this as an essential part of doing business. They call it customer obsession. And to succeed, businesses have to be obsessed with creating that emotional connection and that experience for their customers. So that's the mindset, the, the mental part. But the practical next step then to take this out of a thought or an ideal and turn it into some actions, the, the process of doing that is to consider your customer's perspective, to literally get into their shoes and to look at every single phase when they're researching when they're entering into a conversation with you, when they're uh, actually transacting and what happens after they, they buy your product or service. So to, to look at all of that from the customer's point of view and then to be asking the question every single step of the way, all the minutia, what can you do to improve the connection that they have with you, to improve the experience, to, to be leading them, not just selling to them, not just marketing to them, but leading. That means guiding and inspiring and creating something that's that's a value for them at every single itty-bitty step. Yeah, that connection that they're forming over time with your business and your brand. And you, you talk about also this, that I think you're alluding to it here, this stop putting up walls between you and the buyer. I think what, what you're saying there, and I'll ask you in a moment, is that we tend to create friction sometimes in the buying process and the interaction process. Sometimes I think it comes from, as small business owners, we tend to focus on that very small percentage of customers who are abusing what we have to offer. They're stealing from us or taking advantage of us. And so then we, you know, we'll put up the sign that says whatever, you know, you touch it, you break it, that kind of mentality. In other words, we start to forget, like you said, looking at things from the perspective of the customer. So share with me a little bit more about that, what you see typically of how people put up these walls between themselves, their business, and the buyers and the customers. Well, yeah, I do think most of these are inadvertent. We, we don't intend to put up a wall. But when you look at things from the customer's perspective, the user's perspective, what does it signal when they're on your website and there's no phone number on it or, or no email address? and they can't figure out how to get in touch with you. That looks like a barrier. Maybe you have a contact form, but it's completely one-sided, it's invisible to them, and if they want something more urgently, they're probably gonna move on to, to one of your competitors who they can have that interaction with uh, at their 
pace and, and when they want to. Or maybe um, you're a retail store and you're very, very busy. And when people come into the store and you're in the midst of paperwork and inventory and whatever else you've got going on, perhaps to the customer, that looks like you can't be bothered. Uh, you seem aloof. You seem as if you'd rather do anything but interact with the person who's right there, money in their pocket, ready to spend with you. And you don't mean to, to send that signal, but the reality is that's probably what the customer's seeing. Yeah, no doubt. And so we're, we're talking about all these things really do fall into this category of sales. It's just as you said at the outset, people have, especially small business owners, have this misunderstanding a lot of times about what sales is. We're, we're all in sales, no matter whether we're traditionally selling a car, let's say, as, as we might have the connotation. We're always selling, of course, our experience, our product, our service in one way or another. And through an extension of that, often in business, it's not just us, it's our employees, it's our environment, it's our website, it's our place of business. All of those things are selling who we are and what we do. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And the standard is higher today than it's ever been before. That That's what makes this so challenging. Mm -hmm. So you've shared a couple of, of mistakes or common issues that you see with clients. What else do you see as far as this whole topic of selling whether again, it's directly selling, because that's what you do in your business, you actually sell directly to a consumer or another business, a product or a service, or it's just more generally speaking. What are some other common mistakes you see small business owners make? Let me talk about two. One is, surprisingly, doing too much for the customer. I call this the Chipotle effect, but if you think about some of the strongest brands today, they are places like Build-A-Bear Workshop, uh, Chipotle, Sephora Makeup, uh, Home Depot, where you, where you have the do-it-yourself workshops. What, what's happening is that businesses are bringing in consumers and allowing them to be participants in creating what they want. And when we have a hand, even if it's simple, I, I want a little more salsa. I'd like uh, a few beans, but not too many. Um, could you give me some more of that... Um, corn relish, you know, whatever it is, as you build your burrito, uh, you're creating it. It's yours. It's personalized. You have ownership of it. And that's powerful. The more that we can do to, to customize or to understand the needs of the customer and to help them feel like they are taking ownership, the better we are in terms of the sales we make, the loyalty we foster, the experience that, that the customer has, and then we'll go talk about on, on social media and elsewhere. All right. And you're seeing that, obviously, I think we all can understand and see that for ourselves. Everybody wants uh, a custom whatever, right? They, they want it just for me. I don't want the standard common thing that everybody gets. I want to be able to customize it for myself is what you're talking about, right? You bet. And unless you sell something that is truly a commodity and you mm -hmm. sell because your price is the lowest, right. you've got to do something to, to differentiate. That's right. That's right. Uh, and at least or at least make that customer or client feel like, genuinely feel like they are the most important person at that particular moment in time that they're interacting with you. Yes, because emotions connect you even before rationale and logic do. All right, so just in generally on, on sales effectiveness, obviously you, you've done a lot of that, you do a lot of that sales enablement, helping sales forces become more effective, individual salespeople, whether, whether again, I'm someone that's uh, 
on the shop floor, on the retail side of it, or selling to businesses, calling on other businesses. Some tips or techniques there that you found that can very easily be applied to help you improve those skills. Do we have time for me to tell you a story that really illustrates this? Oh, absolutely. It's a little bit embarrassing, but okay. So, um, <laughs> um, when I this this question makes me think of a guy by the name of Nick, and we were remodeling our our home. This was a few years back, and I walked into one of these places. It was called Trends, uh, and it's this very very high end fixture store. So, your bathroom faucets and and your kitchen door cabinet door pulls that kind of stuff in, in the store really high end it was for me just to get the inspiration and the ideas so I could go somewhere else where it would be more affordable that that was the thought but when I walked into the store Nick greeted me and Nick may be the single smartest salesperson that I've ever met uh, because he just started talking to me so so what he was doing was getting a human to human connection and he asked me questions like so what causes you to want to remodel at this time and what are some life changes as you're going to remodel how do you want your house to reflect where and who you are now and these were really interesting questions but he was just getting to know me and here's what he got out of me and this all happened in about five minutes what he got out of me was that I had shifted my house had shifted from my two daughters had grown up and moved out my young much younger son and my husband and I were what was left in the house and so I felt outnumbered the, the male-female ratio had shifted and where that mattered Nick got me to say all this as I say in just five minutes that's why this is so embarrassing but what mattered was that um, toilet seats were, were no longer down and, uh, <laughs> and I had bad experiences with toilet seats especially since I would wake up at like 435 in the morning that's my, my usual start time yeah so Nick introduced me to a toilet that has an automatic seat that goes down after it's been up <laughs> and it has a timer and so that seat warms up at, at, at 4 30 in the morning it's um it's about as inviting as a toilet can be and uh, <laughs> i went from walking into the store thinking i would spend nothing there only get ideas to buying a very very expensive toilet that to this day I love. And that all happened because Nick just took time, in answer to your question, he took time to engage with me. It was one-to-one. -one. We were having a human conversation. He, he later became a consultant around many other things in, in the remodel, but that happened because he just took time to treat me like a person. Yeah, such, such a great story there. So he then, that, by asking you those questions, those insightful questions, he was able to now sell you a solution, not just a product. Uh, and that applies to whatever we're selling. But it goes back to your initial curiosity with questions and the journalism track you took. And in my experience, and I'd like your thoughts on it, that the key to becoming good at sales, regardless of what you're selling, is learning to ask good questions. What are your, what are your thoughts and experience on that? I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'd even take it a step further. I, I think that good questions, purposeful thoughtful questions driven by your, your genuine interest. I, to me, that's the heart of any relationship. We trust people who ask us questions and, and demonstrate their care by, by taking time to ask. That's very well said, very well put. And I think one of the key takeaways then, because I started this whole segue here about what tips can we apply as small business owners, 
whether it's yourself selling or you're training or developing others to sell, if you can help them with the good questions to ask, insightful questions, like the example that you gave with, I uh, can't remember the person's name who sold you this, the, the toilet seat, but he had perfected a short number of questions that got enough out of you to then help him direct where you needed to go so that he could sell you something that really was going to solve your problem, right? And so I think that's the takeaway is helping one of the takeaways, helping your people and yourself learn and it takes practice and development to ask the right types of questions. Agreed. And and what Nick did there was not just have the questions to start, but he had the the ability to genuinely listen to what I said and and to ask the follow-up questions. He engaged with me. He didn't just go off a script. Ah, such a good point, right? It wasn't just something he was reading off and not listening and thinking about how quickly he could interject and say something back. He was actually listening, and that's such an important component of it. Yes. All right, wonderful. Those are all great tips. Uh, I want to take a, a turn here to something else that I know you specialize in, as I mentioned at the outset, and that's assessment tools. So I just wanted to get your general input, feedback, thoughts. We use them, for example, we use a couple of assessment tools in the hiring process at uh, one of our businesses, which is a self-serve frozen dessert restaurant. And it helps us just, we use it in that hiring process to make sure that we believe they might be a fit into our team personality-wise in particular. Uh, how have you seen it used? How do you advise your clients that they use assessment tools? When do you think it makes sense? Share with me your thoughts on that, if you would. Yeah, you know, there are, um, there's a lot of, of thought out there, and some of it varies. So for me personally, in my hiring, I use an assessment tool as a piece of information in a process. Uh, I don't use it to screen in or out a candidate. And some tools are, are better than others. So DISC, for example, a personality tool, that one has some validity. It's been scientifically proven. MBTI, Myers-Briggs type, it's a little bit more sophisticated. And because of its sophistication and the, the better ways of using it, it's not one that I typically recommend in the hiring process. It's more about the team effectiveness and, and building for the long term by understanding people. I think that... Um, Assessment tools, especially in, in retail environments, for example, are as much around the, the, the characteristics of the person as maybe what we'd call the, the personality. So you know, are, are they detail-oriented? Are they able to respond with urgency? Some of those things which are more characteristics and, and they're learned or conditioned as opposed to, I think, personality, which is more innate. Yeah, great, great point that we also use it just as one data point. It doesn't mean we will or will not hire somebody unless they're way off the scale. Then we might really ask ourselves a hard question. Why do we still think this person is a fit when the assessment says completely the opposite? So we might in that case. But where we also use and I'd love your thoughts on as well is for an on, like you alluded to it, ongoing coaching and development of someone when you understand better what their personality type is, maybe where their strengths are, then you can better coach and develop and motivate that person to become more and more productive and happier with what they're doing. Agreed. And the, the benefit of using it at the onset and throughout is that we take the, uh, we take out the subjective factor. See, we all we can't help it. We sort of judge other people looking through our own lens. We, we project our own stuff. But if we understand people or if we 
take uh, an objective assessment tool and use it to understand where they're coming from or what they're really capable of, we'll make fewer mistakes in hiring and we'll do better jobs at uh, developing people, expanding their capacity. Great, great stuff. All right, we'll take a little bit more of a personal turn here. And I'm curious as to what you would say have been some of the keys to success in your life and in your business life as well. I think I would have to give this one to my parents. Uh, so both my parents were Marine Corps drill sergeants. And they believed that if you put your mind to something, you could make it happen. But it was going to be hard work, and, and you just knew that going in. And I can remember both of them saying throughout my life, where there's a will, there's a way, and leaving it to me to figure out if there was enough will that I had that I wanted to go after it, and then to find my own way. So that to, maybe the short term for that would be tenacity. But it's about, for me, I think a lot of my success is about not being afraid to fail, knowing that failure is a step to something different, uh, being able to acknowledge failure and, and not be uh, consumed by it, and, and just using it as a clue to, to redirect. Did you, do you, looking back, do you, did you always have that lack of fear of failure or did it come with time? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because I, I, I think both. I I always did things, even when I was very young, I always did things that were a little different from the norm or the proven. And I did them in ways that might have sometimes even been reckless. What changed for me later is the way I felt about the results. So even though I kept going and I would, I would keep trying things, I could remember when I was younger just being so distraught and so upset with things that didn't work and, and worrying so much about how that made me look. And now I don't care about that at all. <laughs> Interesting. It's because, again, you were worried about others' perceptions and, and you probably grew up in an environment like what a lot of us did, including myself, where you had this ideal of perfection and, and you took it personally if you didn't achieve that all the time. And now you've gotten to a point where you, you realize that that's part of the process and you forgive yourself to say the least about it. And you realize that you have to go through these failures to get to the success. Yeah. And people sometimes that, you know, they'll raise an eyebrow or new employees, especially when they say, can we? And, and I say, I don't know, let's find out. Let's mm. try it. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is interesting. That's that, that's that, that mentality of that's the only way we're going to get somewhere is if we try some things or we're going to fail at some of them. Yes. Um, what do you love most about what you do today? The people I meet, the people I get to learn from every day. My, my business exposes me to a lot of different ideas, a lot of different people, different circles, and I absolutely love that. Excellent. All right, so summarize for me, if you would, the services that you offer your clients. We've touched on some of the things, but specifically, give us a little bit more of how you engage with your clients so we do build organizational strength by putting people first. We do that in three areas. We do that in, in helping you to develop your sales, helping you to develop your, your leadership at every level from the, the tip top to the brand new emerging leaders, and we help with team effectiveness. We work in businesses of all sizes. My preference is small and medium-sized business. Uh, we help people to form those connections, sellers to buyers, leaders to others that they want to lead, and teams to each other. And the way that we do that is we have training programs. Some of them are self-paced, uh, individual programs. We have workshops that, that we conduct. 
and we do coaching. So one-to-one, depending on the individual goals of, of any person that we work with, uh, we are able to, to help extract what you already know and, and find some ways to cross-apply that to, to reach those goals. Great, good stuff, great stuff. And it's accessible, like you said, to small business owners. It's priced at a, at a point where small business owners can afford a lot of these components that you offer. You bet. In fact, we have, we have some free stuff. We have an emerging leaders program, and, and I do believe leadership is, is something that, that everybody has an opportunity for. Uh, and we do a program there that's completely no charge, just because I think it's that important. Yeah. Deb, besides your own books, is there a book that you've read recently or in the past that you would recommend to our listeners? There are two that, that I'd like to mention because they're relevant to this conversation. The first is a very new release. It's called Learning Leadership. It's written by Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner, who are also the authors of The Leadership Challenge. But what I like about this one is that it's um, at the back of each chapter, it's got some choices that you can make for self-coaching. So it's it's actionable. And then the other one that comes to mind because of, of our conversation is by Jim Blazingame, and it's called The Age of the Customer. The age of the customer, and what's that about? Well, that is, we are in a new age right now. Customers are empowered. They act differently. They demand more. They expect more, including that emotional connection. And uh, Jim Blasingame, the author, he breaks that down so that if we were to say, let's, what do we do to, to make the things happen that we've been talking about today? I think some of those answers are in that book. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's that's such an important thing, and, I, and I, it's such a difficult thing to deal with, this fact that people do expect more. They want it all for less, right? <laughs> yes. It's, it's such a challenge for us, especially in the, in the B2, uh, B2C world, but perhaps in B2B as well. But thanks for those recommendations. We'll have links to those books as well as yours on the show notes page at thehowofbusiness.com. So we'll wrap it up here. Last parting piece of advice or thought to our audience. Be bold. We're all looking for something unique, different, interesting, something we can connect to, and more of the same just won't get you there. So be bold. Try some new things. What do you have to lose? And where would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and your business? Uh, the website is People First PS. So the words People First are spelled out, and then those two letters, PS, are for Productivity Solutions, PeopleFirstPS.com. Or if you're on social media, that's also my handle on Twitter and elsewhere, People First PS. Fantastic. And we'll have links to all of that again on the show notes page at the How of Business. Uh, Deb, it's been great chatting with you. I've learned quite a few things. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and uh, taking some time to be with us today. It's been my pleasure, Henry. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.